0: Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. As you can see up there, tonight we're going to be approaching this passage from a perspective of powerlessness, which is something quite, you know, raw and visceral and and uncomfortable for us. But I think it can also lead to something profound and good and holy as well and so I guess to start off I was thinking like how, how do we start off a talk like this And I thought I'd share a story about a time when I've felt powerless and there's probably been a few instances over my life where I felt powerless uh the one I chose to go ahead with though for at least this illustration is probably one of the more comical ones I've been through uh it's a time I had a kidney stone not a lot of fun <laughs> And so this was maybe about, oh maybe about four, four or five years ago perhaps. And it started one afternoon as just like some mild back pain. felt like I just kind of needed to stretch stretch it out a bit, maybe get a bit of a back rub, something like that. nothing I thought too much about. By the next morning, the pain had come all around my right side to the middle of my abdomen, and it was this dull pushing pain, like something was trying to push itself out of my guts. It it was probably about moderate at that point, still manageable, wasn't sure what it was, but it would come and it would go. So it would hurt for about 10 minutes and then the pain would subside for a little while and then it would come back again. So I just went through my normal morning routine, get up, have breakfast, help the kids get ready for school. I dropped the kids off to school that morning. And then as I was driving to work, the pain started getting really bad. To the point in the middle of hour traffic, I had to pull over on the side of the road, get out of the car and kind of just stretch it out. I didn't know what was going on, but I just couldn't stay sitting in my car in that position, in that, that pain. Eventually, the pain again subsided, so I jumped back in my car, drove the rest of the way to work. As I entered work, I spoke to one of the admin ladies and I told her what had happened. and She said she had exactly the same experience just a couple of years before and she had to pull out over on the side of the road and kind of like stretch it out. She wasn't too sure what it was. She thought she was going to have to go to hospital, but in the end, it turned out to be wind pain. And so she told herself she was really glad she didn't go to hospital because that would have been really embarrassing to go there with just a bit of gas. And so I told myself, you know what, I mean, just being a bit soft. You need to toughen up <laughs> and just get on with the day because it's just a bit of wind pain. You'll be fine. And so I put up with that pain for a good three hours till about lunchtime to the point where it was getting really bad and I went to the bathroom to see if I could just pass anything just to get rid of the pain. Nothing was happening, but I remember sitting on the toilet (laughs) and the pain hit me so bad that I just rolled off the toilet onto the bathroom floor and I was just there in the fetal position with my pants around my legs and just in agony and I didn't know what was going on. And there's something profound in that moment. It's like we we spend so much of our lives appealing to our ego, to our, our sense of pride, you know, the way we present ourselves, the way we dress, the things that we do. All of that just melted away in that moment. I didn't care about what anyone thought of me. All I knew was that I needed help and I had no power in myself to do it. And so I called out, Not to God, I called out to my boss because his office was closest to the bathroom. And I had no shame, no pride. I didn't care if he came into the bathroom, saw my bum with my pants around my my ankles. I didn't care about that whatsoever. And so I'm there going, Steve, Steve, (laughs) Steve. Steve wasn't there. Steve was out getting a coffee. (laughs) And so I lay on that bathroom floor, what felt like an eternity. It was probably about five minutes, but it felt like an eternity. And eventually the pain subsided enough for me to get back up, pull my pants up, shuffle up to the, uh, back up to the admin area and ask for one of my colleagues to take me to hospital to find out what the hell <laughs> was going on. Anyway, got to the hospital, they did an ultrasound, they found out, yes, I do have a kidney stone. The thing with kidney stones is, if they're four millimetres or bigger, they can be blasted with microwaves and shattered so they can be passed easier. My kidney stone was 3.8 (laughs) millimetres, so it was big enough to hurt, like anything, (laughs) but too small to shatter and it was the shape of a jagged piece of rice, which was nice and fun. (laughs) So I just had to put up with it for the next eight or so hours until it naturally passed. And so I remember lying on the hospital bed, and when the pain would hit me the worst, I would actually be throwing up. And so they gave me a bucket to throw up into, which was horrible. And then they, they came along, and the nurses offered me some morphine. And so I went, yes, give me whatever it takes. Just give me some morphine. The, mor- the morphine was a lie. <laughs> the morphine didn't take away the pain. I remember feeling everything for those full eight hours, every surge, of pain that came through. I remember feeling it all. The morphine just made me too dopey, too out of it to complain about it. And so the nurses thought I was fine. I remember lying in a daze on my hospital bed and seeing the nurses' station and just seeing them talk and laugh and have their coffees and things like that while I'm in this silent hell on the hospital bed just (laughs) crying out inside, but no one could hear me. Yeah, so eventually it finally passed, and I'll never forget that (laughs) ever in my whole life that feeling of powerlessness where that sense of pride and everything just, just melts away. And that that's reading this story of this woman and her place of powerlessness reminded me of that story. And so I'll, re- I'll be reading this, um, this story from Matthew's Gospel. This is Matthew 26. And it goes a bit something like this. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price with the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing for me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for my burial. Truly, I tell you, whenever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And so in my initial readings, I guess not just now, but over the years of this passage, the thing that always stuck with me was Jesus' rebuke of the disciples or the Pharisees, depending which version you are reading. Because In all honesty, I'm with the disciples on this one. That perfume was worth, is estimated to be worth about 300 denarii, which is about the average annual wage of a Jewish male in first century Jerusalem. So it's a decent amount of money, especially for this woman. And so, yeah, this money could have been used to feed a lot of hungry people. This money could have been used to buy medicine to save some lives. And so what does Jesus mean where he's saying you'll always have the poor, but you'll not always have me? Is Jesus being anointed, is his feet smelling nice, more important than saving lives and putting food in the mouths of hungry people? They just didn't make sense. I didn't understand what Jesus was getting at. And as I was writing the sermon and doing my research and some study and things like that, it, it dawned on me that we cannot understand what Jesus is saying from an onlooking perspective. From our perspective, just reading this story, it doesn't make sense. What Jesus says only makes sense from a perspective of powerlessness. And so we don't know much about this woman. Uh, We don't know much about her story in the gospel. There's some assumptions. She might be uh, one of the Marys that are in the Bible. What we can glean from her behavior from this story is that she was a woman who, who was hurting. She was hurting a lot. She was desperate. She was probably a widow or never married. And yes, she was powerless in this situation as well. If we read the story in Luke's gospel, we get a more visceral description of what's happening here. So Luke 7 says, Just then a woman of the village, the town harlot, having learned that Jesus was a guest in the home of the Pharisee, came with a bottle of very expensive perfume and stood at his feet, weeping, raining tears on his feet, Letting down her hair, she dried his feet, kissed them, and anointed them with perfume. And so looking at this woman's behavior, so she enters this meeting of men, and not just men, of, of teachers. So she's a woman, probably a single woman, so she has quite a lowly status in in Jerusalem. But interrupting a meeting of men, of teachers, so much higher in this, on the status ladder, It's either she didn't know the type of meeting she was interrupting or she was just in a place where she didn't care. And I kind of lean towards the latter. Going from my own experience where I just didn't care about, you know, the social expectations, the norms, anything like that, pleasing other people, just reaching out for help. I think this is where this woman was coming from, this place where she just needed to cry out for help and she recognised that Jesus was the only person, the only one that could help her in her situation. And then she took her hair and she wiped her tears from Jesus' feet. And it says she was weeping. And this isn't just like a bit of a snivel, that she was ugly crying. She was like sobbing. So tears were pouring from her face onto Jesus' feet. And she took her hair and used it as a rag to wipe his feet. And now a woman's hair in this, uh, in this time was a social symbol. And so if you were from a wealthy family, a prestigious family, the women would have long hair, usually adorned with flowers and jewels and things like that. If you were from a poorer family, your hair would be shorter. If you were destitute, you would have a shaved head because you just couldn't afford to take care of hair like that. But this woman took her hair, whatever hair she had, this status symbol to say, you know, this is who she is in society, and she used it as a foot rag, a disgusting foot rag. This shows the desperate situation she was in. She didn't care about prestige, she didn't care about what other people thought of her. She just needed to ask for help. This is her proverbial lying on the bathroom floor and yelling out, <laughs> yelling out to a boss. And so we can look at this situation from probably two different ways, from a top-down perspective or a bottom-up perspective. Now, a top-down perspective That is a big picture perspective. So you're up high, you're purveying the land before you. You're looking out, you can see the different players, the different moving parts of the situation. You can look forwards, you can look backwards, and you have this oversight of what's happening. This is where the disciples and the Pharisees were coming from. They could see the society, they could see the poorness, the the poverty in the society around them. They, They were looking at the woman using this perfume to anoint Jesus' feet and saying, this is a waste. There are so many other better things this perfume could be used for. Now, a top-down perspective isn't bad. We want our leaders to have a top-down perspective because they're, they're giving us a the direction. They're saying this is the next step in our journey. They can see how to navigate the road ahead and all that kind of stuff. So a top-down perspective in some ways is very important. It's a very good thing. But that is not where this woman was coming from. She was coming from a bottom-up perspective and a bottom-up up perspective is a very very personal perspective it's it's very individualistic and this woman all she she couldn't see the poor she couldn't see the situation around her all she could see is the cage that she was trapped in and the only way out of this cage that she could see was to go to Jesus and fall at his feet that's all that she could see from this bottom-up perspective And so only by, through that point of view, can we then start to understand what Jesus means when he says, you will always have the poor, but you will not always have me. This is looking at it from the woman's point of view. And it starts to make sense because this isn't about finances or the most optimal way to spend a small fortune. This is a story about grief and desperation. It's about this woman who took the last ounce of a strength the last of a willpower and laid it all at the feet of Jesus that perfume short represented some kind of hope but really it was just a false hope it was sure she could have sold it for the 300 denarii and used that money may ration it out and had food for the next few years perhaps if she did it well but then after that then what she'll still be in the same situation Jesus represented the real hope. This perfume was just the false hope that laid before her, the finite hope. And so in Mark's Gospel, if you read it there, it says the woman didn't just open the jar and pour it on Jesus' feet and then put the stopper back on and then go sell the rest. She broke the jar. She smashed the alabaster jar and poured it over Jesus' feet. It's like a symbol to say that, Jesus, I'm putting everything into you. I am putting all my chips on you, Jesus, and if you don't come through for me, I'm lost, I'm done, I'm dead. There's no going back from that moment onwards. It's an act of trust, of faith, of surrender that this woman gave to Jesus. And you know what? Jesus met her in that place, in that raw personal place, when she was at her lowest crying out for help. That's where Jesus met her. This is not a story about the charity for the masses. This is a story about the redemption for just the one, just that individual. Now, we don't know what happened to this woman after this story. We don't really get too much more about her. We don't know if her life was blessed. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. We we don't know. All we know is that, like Jesus says, she was immortalised in all four Gospels. Like we said before, this story was told across all four Gospels. One of just 11 stories that appears in all the Gospels as well. And so taking what we know from this woman now, just applying this now to to church and our lives and how this looks as us, as individuals, as Christians, and also us collectively as a church as well. Richard Raw, he talks about the 12-step program. He's done a lot with uh, AA Alcoholics Anonymous and NA Narcotics Anonymous. And he talks about how the program starts with powerlessness. In one of his writings, he says, The genius of the 12-step programs is that they situate powerlessness and surrender right where they belong at the beginning. They teach how sin or addiction are overcome not through willpower or by control, but much more by recognizing that we are powerless to overcome them. He then goes on to talk about uh, and speak about things like how it's futile for us to try to just fix ourselves within our own strength, meaning that we just don't wake up and decide we're going to improve this part of ourselves just because. Rather, the process is usually through pain and error that we recognize the holes in our own character and we are prompted, we are spurred on to make some changes. So, for example, we don't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be charitable. Rather, we remember the times when we weren't charitable and we mourn over them and we weep over them and we feel the pain of not being enough. And through that pain, it transforms us and we become more charitable because of it. And in those moments when we are weeping over the gaps we recognise in ourselves, it doesn't feel like power. It feels like the opposite of power. It feels like absolute powerlessness because we know we haven't met the mark. And it's a place we don't want to go, but it's the place of transformation at the same time. I've been a chaplain for a bit over two years now. And at the start of each year, we have to write a report about what are our goals, are, where we're going, what we want to do with this year ahead of us in the the schools that we're we're in. And that that prompted me to do some reflection at the beginning of the year. And I was just thinking, like, how did I get to this point to be a chaplain? It was never really on my, you know, 10-year plan, this is where I want to be. I kind of just naturally gravitated towards and kind of almost, it's almost like I found myself (laughs) in this job. And so thinking about the steps that led me to where I am. And why I, you know, I'm in high schools and dealing with uh, troubled youth, and and the families, like oh, what what led me here? And I and I've always kind of done a little bit with youth throughout the church, sometimes more than, than others. And sure, there were lots of good times. There's lots of really fun times helping lead youth groups and things like that. But I think the pivotal moments for me, the the moments that really put me on the path to where I am now, were the areas like Richard Raw was talking about, where I feel like I, I didn't make it, where I wasn't good at handling uh, a situation when it came to young people. And so so some of the things I remember that that have really stuck with me is one of the first times I ever worked with youth was I was probably about 16 or 17 years old and there was an Anglican church and on Friday night they would run a drop-in centre and so I was kind of like a junior leader at this drop-in centre. And I remember one night this kid, he was about seven years old, um, I remember dark hair, freckles, I remember his face like like I saw him yesterday. I can't remember his name, though, but I remember his face. And he came up to me and he was sobbing. He was bawling his eyes out. And he was saying some of the other boys were picking on him. Now, being in the position I am now, I know there's a few different things I could do. I could obviously console him. I could go and approach the boys and try to reconcile this issue. Or at very least, I could have found a more senior leader and said, hey, this kid's having some trouble. Do you reckon you can handle it? I didn't do any of that. I just went, that sounds rough, and I walked away. And and i remember feeling like a failure and i just i just left this kid crying i don't know what happened to him afterwards but i just remember that that's a time where i feel like i didn't i didn't cut it i let that kid slip through the cracks i i didn't deal with that problem at all it doesn't feel like power it feels it feels horrible there was another time when um when i was running uh, helping run youth groups and um it was a group of boys that um would come to our little section of the youth group all the time. And uh, some years later, one of the boys from the youth group actually passed away in a motorbike accident. And I remember feeling and thinking to myself, like, I spent a few years with this boy, you know, in my youth group and did I do enough? Did I build into him enough? Did I love him enough? Did I listen to him enough? You know, and, and these kind of feelings, would I have done anything differently if, you know, he was still around and we were doing that youth group again? And so it's these kind of thoughts. It's, it's the pain that's transforming, not just, not the good times, but it's like, I want to be better. I can do better. And it's not coming from a place of like, you know, um, like self punishment or anything like that, but it's a place of identifying these holes in my character where I want to grow. As adults, unfortunately, it is the pain and the hard times that grow us more than the good times. Before I was a chaplain, I was a, I was a revenue manager working in hotels. And when I'd hit my budget, it was great. It felt awesome. You know, you get high fives, you have long lunches, you have drinks after work. Everyone will be telling you what a great job you did. I, you know, broke the record for whatever the budget was for that month. It felt fantastic, but didn't learn a thing. <laughs> it was the times I didn't make my budget that I learned more because I'll be staying back after work, going through the books, working out where did I stuff up? What opportunities did I miss? What Did I let slip through my fingers? What would I do differently if I was to have that same month next time around? It's through the hardships that grow us, through the powerless times that grow us, not just the good times. And so powerlessness is the driver of change. It's also within the first few steps of our journey of change as well. There have been many times i felt powerless in my life. When I walked away from from my 20-year career in hotels without a job to go to, that felt powerless. When my mum had her stroke and she was lying in a hospital bed in a vegetated state for six months before she finally passed away, that felt powerless. But it's when I was finally able to let go whatever bits of power I was desperately trying to hold on to, that proverbial alabaster jar, that, You know, trying to do this in my own strength, when I was finally able to let go of that, that is where I felt the most peace. That's where I felt God reach me the most. That's where I encountered Him multiple times. Every time I felt that I felt myself in that place of powerlessness and let go of whatever thing I'm just holding on to with my fingernails, that's where I have encountered God more than anywhere else in my life. That's where He's met me. It's not always easy to let go of that stuff, though. Sometimes, for me, it's been a war to let go of this stuff, and it's hurt, and it's had to be like pride out of my hands at some points. But that's where I met God in that in that liminal space, in that uncomfortable space. But that's where He guided me, and 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 I survived. I'm still here today. I'm still in one piece, but it's not by my strength. And I recognise it's not by my strength. It's not by my own genius or my own resourcefulness. It's through God's love for me and just feeling held and wrapped in his love in those moments of pain. Richard Rohr also says that powerlessness is the path of true Christian growth. He says, any talk of growth, achievement, climbing, improving, and progress highly appeals to the ego. But the only way we stay put, sorry, the only way we stay on the path with any authenticity is to constantly experience our incapacity to do it, our failure at doing it. Otherwise, we're not really climbing. We're just thinking that we're climbing, saying to ourselves, look, I'm better today. Look, I'm holier than I was last week. Look, my prayer is improving. But that doesn't teach us anything or lead us anywhere new. When we're thinking we're doing this in our own strength, we cannot go further than our own understandings, our own egos of ourselves. He then goes on to say actually something I found quite confronting and, and, and hard-hitting. He says that a lot of us Christians have sought without knowing it a certain self-satisfaction, a certain smugness. We think that I'm a good Christian, I go to church on Sunday, I read the Bible, I love Jesus, and this is the bit that hurts. And that's why there's still racism, sexism, homophobia and classism at the highest levels. Christianity has too often shown itself to be well-disguised narcissism. Powerlessness is the beginning of the spiritual journey. That's a lot, isn't it? And I remember the times in my life, and my, my faith has led me to have this kind of smugness. Like I've got the, my insurance plan sorted out, I've got what's happening in the next life sorted and so I can do whatever I want in this life. Or I, I don't have to try as hard because I've, I'm good with Jesus and or even, you know, that whole smugness like, oh, I've got God, I know you don't, that's why you're struggling, haha, <laughs> kind of thing. It's it's comes out of a place of control, of ego, of power. But because when we come from that stance of self-achievement, that stance of self-righteousness, that stance of self-gratitude, we we don't see any reason to change. It's only through acknowledging our own flaws, our powerlessness, can we be more like Christ and open ourselves up to a deeper and more encompassing level of love. And many of us, I'm sure you would agree, would carry wounds from people within churches who have used religion to control us or oppress us or ostracize us. And that's the reason why we need to fall at the feet of Christ again and again and again on a daily basis to approach God with a spirit of powerlessness just like this woman approached Jesus in Bethany. Because from that stance, who are we to say who is good enough for the kingdom and who isn't? From that stance, who are we to say God's love will reach so far but not that much further, not to those people over there? We cannot do that from the stance of powerlessness. That was the attitude that the disciples had and the Pharisees had and Jesus rebuked them for it. Yeah, and this, this is something I found interesting. Yet despite how close the disciples were to Jesus, personally they spent a lot of time with him and despite how much training the Pharisees had years and years of training to be in their position the only person in the room that could see the coming death of Christ and acted accordingly was this woman who anointed Jesus through the mess of her hair and the flow of tears her eyes were still open enough to see the significance of the crucifixion which was only coming a couple days after this actually happened and Jesus acknowledges this action saying when she poured this perfume on my body she did it to prepare me for my burial and so the perspective of powerlessness it's uncomfortable It's really uncomfortable it leaves us feeling exposed and vulnerable but perhaps perhaps there's also a great wisdom to be found there as well and perhaps there are things that we can only see that we can't see when we're looking at the top down, but we can only see when we're looking from the bottom upwards. And so just to finish, I just want to invite you, when the invitation of powerlessness knocks at your door, may you have the courage to fall at the feet of Christ and admit your shortfallings and your inability to fix the problem in your own power. And may you also have the courage to release whatever earthly thing you're holding to, your proverbial alabaster jar, and may you feel Christ lift you up into that place of wholeness again and a wholeness far beyond anything you know you could achieve yourself. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au Music by Chris D'Souza beloved member of Central.